Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. We are going to be venturing into the world of ancient legend and ancient history. We're going to discuss the Lost Palace of Odysseus, and we have with us uh, one of our favorite regular guests, Dr. Gary Stickle. Gary, how are you? I'm fine. Great to be with you today. And Gary, as you know, we call him the real-life Indiana Jones. He's an archaeologist, uh, Homeric scholar. He's explored sites from Greece to Machu Picchu. And I can tell you that I know personally that his great love is in being able to, or hopefully soon being able to uncover the lost palace of Odysseus. So Gary, why don't you tell us, let's start off with what's the big idea? And that is, what's the big idea about this lost palace of Odysseus? What are we to know? Discuss. Well, the thing is, uh, I have this Homeric project I've been telling you about uh, to celebrate Homer's great epics of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey are the two oldest books of Western European civilization. There's nothing older, and yet they're incredibly sophisticated. Um, <clears throat> and uh, they were long thought to be completely fiction. So back in the 19th century, late 19th century, uh, all, virtually all the scholars at the universities thought that these great epics of Homer, the Iliad about the Trojan War and the Odyssey about King Odysseus' uh, epic voyage home were completely fiction. But there was a German by the name of Heinrich Schliemann who, like me, had been fascinated by the story since he was a child his father introduced him to uh, the stories. And uh, Schliemann went out to uh, prove that uh, that Troy actually existed and therefore the Iliad was <clears throat> telling about true history, even though it's embellished by, you know, uh, the stories of the gods and all that. And so Schliemann uh, actually, he came to California and he made a fortune here uh, during the California gold rush, you know, uh, uh, you know, merchandising. Uh, and with that funds, which was equivalent to millions of dollars, uh, he went over to what is now Turkey, near the uh, entrance to the, what the uh, Turks call the Dardanelles, but uh, the Greeks call the Hellespont, the water passageway that goes from the Aegean Sea over to the Black Sea. And that's where Troy's located at that junction. And he went there and he actually found the city of Troy. Uh, I'll give you more details later. But today, uh, you know, Schliemann conducted excavations, which to archaeologists like me today are uh, horrible because he didn't know what he's doing. Uh, like a line in, in Indiana Jones, by the way, he was making it up as it's going along. <laughs> so uh, uh. in his defense, you know, he didn't have a, 
professional guidelines on how to excavate properly like we do today and everything. Uh, but he made such spectacular finds, including the so-called treasure of King Prime, which turned out to be much older than the uh, era of the Trojan War. But he captured the imagination of the world. And uh, since then, the, the site's been excavated periodically. It's been excavated more or less continuously now since the 1980s, primarily by the Germans. Um, and there's no doubt that it is the city of Troy. And I met the main German excavator back in the 80s and uh, early 90s, uh, Manfred Korfman, University of Tübingen. I met him when he gave a lecture on this at the Getty Villa Museum. And he invited me over to Troy and I went over as an invitation. He published a massive book with 52 PhD scholars on Troy in 2001. It's all in German. Um, it's called Troy Traum und Wirklichkeit, which means Troy uh, Dream and Reality. And in it, there's no doubt that it is Troy. So what I'm thinking is if there was a real uh, city of Troy for the Iliad, why wouldn't there be a real palace of Odysseus for the Odyssey? It's equivalent. And the uh, just as the Iliad is the greatest story of war ever written, the Odyssey is the greatest action-adventure story ever written, and the most influential so, one. So would you say the, the big idea here is that you are going to show that Odysseus was a real person? Yes. And if you find the palace, as Homer described it, uh, then I think it's – you can't absolutely say he was a real person, but it certainly would indicate the probability he probably was. All right, that's our choir of angels uh, giving Gary their blessing for being able to hopefully find that this palace is there and that we have an indication that there really was an Odysseus. There really was a person that this story was based upon. And again, like you were saying, that's what drove Schliemann, right? His old boyhood dream was that, okay, these stories are real, these people are real. Um, I'm going to prove it. And he he also tried to find the uh, the palace of Odysseus. And how did that work out? Uh, it, uh, it didn't. Uh, right. So and, what what did he did he was it a crash and burn? Was it did he end up in completely the wrong place? What happened? Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a quote because he he published a, in a, in a book about it. And uh, uh, the, the version I have is called Ilios, uh, which is the main Greek name for Troy, not, not Troy, it's Ilios. That's why it's called the Iliad. It means poem of Ilios. Uh, and so, and, uh, so Schliemann went to um, uh, the island they call Ithaca today or they've been calling it for a long time. Uh, it's, it's Ithaki in Greece and everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he went to Ithaca off the west coast of Greece in 1868. And he dug all over the island. And this is what he said. This is a quote from his publication on it. At last, I was able to realize the dream of my life and to visit the scene of those events which had such immense uh, excuse me, intense interest for me. 
and the country of the heroes whose adventures had delighted and comforted my childhood. I started therefore in Ithaca, this famous island. I investigated it carefully with excavations to find the so-called castle of Ulysses. Ulysses being the ancient Roman preferred name, you know, for, uh, you know, for right. Odysseus. And, so um, he thought so, he had found know, it. So the thing is, um, uh, he wasn't as fortunate as he was with Troy because mm -hmm. he failed to find the palace. And okay. he published his results in a book called, he did it in French, called Isaac de Peloponnese at Troy. And he published that in 1868. And get this, I think this is wild. He said, when he did not find the Odysseus Palace, he said, quote, I abandoned this ungrateful excavation. Nonetheless, he enjoyed his experience there. And he said, quote, I strongly recommend a visit to Ithaca not only to all admirers of Homer, but also to those who wish to see ancient Greek type of men and great female beauty. <laughs> I, okay. I, I've never seen an archaeologist, uh, you know, uh, talking about that he failed to do something. And then he, he said, but there's pretty girls there, you know. He was uh, giving his travel log. I guess that was probably the, so, the way in the 19th century, right? No, no archaeologist today would say such a thing. that would be considered too sexist, you know, the, Probably saying things well, like that today. What what is the situation with where you think the palace is? Is there a difference between where people have been looking? Why do you think you've got a bead on this? What makes your your take on it, in your opinion, different and correct? Okay, and I'll uh, I'll give you there's there's a passage in uh, Book Nine of, of the Odyssey. Uh, they call them books, but they're really like chapters, you know. And uh, this is a translation by uh, a translator that most scholars use. His name is Richmond Lattimore. And, and so this is um, line 19 through 26. And he says, and, and it's a sequence where Odysseus is telling this king where he's from. And so Odysseus says, I am Odysseus, son of Laertes, known before all men for the study of crafty designs. And my fame goes up to the heavens. Odysseus was not uh, bashful, you know. Right. Um, my fame has gone up to the heavens. I, have, I am at home in sunny Ithaca. There is a mountain there that stands tall, leaf-trembling Neratos. And there are islands settled around it, lying one very close to the other. There is Dolichion and Same and wooded Zakynthos. But get this, my island lies low and away, last of all on the water, beyond the dark, while the rest below, the, the, the rest uh, face the east in the sunshine. So what he's saying there is his island is westernmost of those Ionian islands, not easternmost. So today, what the island they're calling uh, Ithaca is easternmost of those islands. Well, why, if that passage is specific, and since that passage is specific, why do so many scholars accept this erroneous interpretation of where the palace is? I mean, I'm wondering, you're pointing out something that is right from the text, yet scholars are saying something which is sort of the opposite is the case in terms of where this palace is located. What are they, how are they missing this? Why are they missing this? I, I think it's because even the classical Greeks, for some 
reason by the time of classical Greece, and they thought this other island was uh, Ithaca. I think even Herodotus thought it was. And so, you know, they're, they're saying, well, if Herodotus is saying that it's uh, Ithaca, it must be. But they well, you know, that's take- funny. I just want to say that's funny, Gary, because the it's this is, again, my, my gripe with a lot of contemporary scholarship. So if, scholar- if Herodotus says that, then it must be with this particular instance. However, of course, we talk about Amazons, Scythian warrior women, all this kind of stuff. Herodotus can't possibly know what he's talking about. So it's, uh, again, I just, it drives me crazy. Scholarship decides a particular great uh, thinker or writer of the ancient world is an impeccable source when they want him to be an impeccable source. And when they don't want him to be, he's not. So yeah. anyway, that's my little rant. So, so because the classical sources have defined the location as being this easternmost island, as you call it, or this eastern island, as you call it, it's you think it's what's misguided people in the search. Absolutely, because they've been digging, uh, and and subsequent to Schliemann, his protege, uh, Dorpfeld, uh, dug there, and he dug all over the island, he couldn't find it either. And then since then, various archaeologists, you know, over all, all the intervening time, even fairly recently, in the early 2000s, uh, tried to find it on the island, and they couldn't find it on the island called Isaki. And so, get this, a Greek researcher, and nobody cites him except me, I guess. Uh, his name is Nikolas Livadas, L-I-V-A-D-A-S. Mm-hmm. He's uh, not a professional archaeologist, but a, an astute researcher. And he published a book uh, in 1998 called Odysseus, Odysseus's Ithaca, The Riddle Solved. And in it, he makes the case that Homer's island of Odysseus was not the modern island called Ithaca, but the island located to the west of it uh, called today Kefalonia. And so that's where you believe it is. Yes. But the thing is, um, his he, he didn't refine that interpretation because Kefalonia is the biggest of those islands. It's very large. And uh, another aspect that I... Uh, wanted to mention with that quote is the quote also mentions in the same journal passage that Odysseus says, my island lies low, meaning low relief. Um, modern uh, Ithaca or Ithaki is like two mountains connected by a little isthmus, very mountainous. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't conform to that part of Homer's account either. Whereas where I'm working, it's a, a peninsula. It's a westernmost extension of Kefalonia, and it's called the Paliki Peninsula, and it's connected to the main part of the island by uh, an isthmus. And uh, so get this, uh, another scholar, um, again, not a professional archaeologist, but still astute, published a book in 2005 at Cambridge in England called Odysseus Unbound, the Search for Homer's Ithaca. And in it, he makes the case that the westernmost part of Kefalonia is really Ithaca. And he says he believed that 3,000 years ago, there was a, a small sea channel between Paliki and the main part of the island. So it was a separate island 3,000 years ago. And in fact, he thinks that Strabo, another historian, ancient Greek historian, mentioned it. And he, he calls it Strabo's channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he hasn't provided absolutely conclusive evidence, but I think he's right. And I think that that is the real island of Ithaca. Would you, in going there, would that be one of the first things you try to show or find a way to show if uh, you could maybe tell us how we, how you could? How could you show that, that had there had been a channel there and that had been an island? Well, that's really for geologists to uh, study. Um, they, would, they would have to do uh, geophysical surveys and stuff like that and <clears throat> analyze that. That's really not my expertise. I'm, I'm an archaeologist. Um, well, you could, you I guess, know a few geophysicists, I believe, right? Would you bring them along with you? Well, yeah, if I can find a good one, yes. Uh, but um, uh, actually, I, I think I found a way that even if it wasn't a separate island, which I do believe it was, but even if it wasn't a separate island uh, 3,000 years ago, it doesn't have to be an island as we think of it today to qualify uh, for the Odyssey. And I'll, I'll give you uh, my reason. Okay. The Greek, the Greek word for island is Nisos. And that's, and so the Peloponnesos, which is this large area connected by the Isthmus of Corinth to the upper part of Greece. Mm-hmm. And the Peloponnesos has the site of Olympia where the Olympic Games were performed. It has Sparta, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, you it's know, in the it's, south, right? It's to the south of the islands mm-hmm. we're talking about, to the southwest, uh, uh, excuse me, southeast. Now, it's called the island of Pelops, this legendary, you know, uh, ruler on the island, you know, back in mythical times. Uh, but it's not an island. But it, so apparently, Nisos can mean either island or island like. So what I'm saying okay. is, uh, even if Paliki is wasn't a separate island 3,000 years ago, it was so island-like that it qualified as an island. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell us tell us a bit more about the importance of Odysseus. Okay. Um, the the thing is, um, the Palace of Odysseus. Again, you know, from Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, is really the stuff of legends. You know, it's a place full of superlatives. It was the home of the smartest and craftiest king who participated in the Trojan War. And the Trojan War is the most famous war of ancient times. There's nothing to compare with it. Odysseus was a hero that brought about the end of that 10-year-long Trojan War when his creation of what I'm calling uh, the first reported stealth war machine in history, the Trojan horse. It's a good way to describe it. Well, thank you. And so inside of it, Odysseus and his commandos sneaked into Troy. They opened the gates to the, uh, you know, the Greek army that was uh, silently waiting outside so they could storm the sleeping city and, and they brought about its horrific fall. Now get this, the palace is is highly significant. I mean, the thing is, all ancient Greeks read the Odyssey. They knew about the Palace of Odysseus. And then Rome, which so uh, admired Greece, uh, every educated Roman read both the Iliad and the Odyssey. So that's why I'm saying that the Palace of Odysseus has got to be the most famous palace 
of uh, classical times because they all read about it. They all knew about it. Mm -hmm. And in that palace. What about the the man? The what? The man, the man himself. Oh, the man. Well, uh, Homer called him a clever, crafty Odysseus. Um, Even though he's from a minor kingdom, his kingdom was very small. And the thing is, uh, he became a, a legend, basically. Uh, and and because he's the hero of the Odyssey, and so he goes on what, what? I call a fantastic okay. voyage. Mm-hmm. And uh, this fantastic voyage, where he encounters all these monsters, goddesses, you know, and gods, um, and he he manages to maneuver through it all and and come out alive, where all of his men on twelve ships are all killed. And he manages to make it home to his beautiful wife and Queen Penelope after 20 years. It's just an incredible story of survival. And what incredible... is it about him? What is it about his personality? What are his gifts? What are his talents? Uh, his gifts are that he's very smart. He comes up with uh, clever solutions to problems like the Trojan horse, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, But he's not... He's interesting as a character because he's not the perfect hero. You know, he's not always noble and everything. He'll lie, steal, and cheat to succeed. Interesting. So he's a very, we think of it as a modern, but humans have been as we are for a very long time. But he is something that modern people can relate to. He really could fit like the characters we see on these great modern TV series, you know. Oh, I think so. In fact, I like to see a series that, like you and I have talked about before, that would be called Rage of the Gods, and it would combine the Iliad and the Odyssey into one seamless multi-year story like uh, Game of Thrones. <clears throat> because Odysseus Absolutely. is more interesting than any character in Game of Thrones. I mean, he's he's fantastically uh, smart and adroit at getting out of dangerous situations. Can you give us an example of that? Can you tell us a couple of maybe choice Odysseus stories where he uses his, the man of many wiles, I believe he's called, right? Where he uses his yeah. craftiness. Yeah. Well, the most famous one is his encounter with the Cyclops. And the Cyclops is this giant one-eyed monster that lives in a cave. And so Odysseus and his men land on the Cyclops Island. The Cyclops is a race of these one-eyed giants. And uh, they live in caves on this island. And uh, so Odysseus goes into the cave with 12 men, symbolic number, by the way. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, the uh, owner of the cave is absent. He's out tending his sheep. And uh, they see these great uh, stores of cheeses and milk and so on. So they're going to steal it. I mean, Odysseus had no compunction about stealing whatever he needs, you know. Uh, and, and while they're in the process of doing that, the Cyclops comes back. He rolls this giant stone, like a doorstone, over the entrance, locking Odysseus and his men in the cave. And then he finds them, and he proceeds to eat one of them <laughs> because he's a cannibal. Um, and so Odysseus has to find a way out of that cave. And so he gets the, the, the giant cyclops drunk with wine that he happened to bring into the cave. Uh, and the cyclops falls asleep. 
And so his men urge him to kill him. But he says, no, we can't kill him because if we kill him, we'll never get out of this cave. We'll starve to death. So he figures out a way to get him out of the cave. And this is what he does. He tells him to take this giant uh, log-like thing that the giant was going to make into a club. And they sharpen it down to a point, And then they uh, fire it up with a fire. And then he and some of his men stab it into the eye of the Cyclops, blinding the Cyclops. And he did that knowing that the Cyclops would have to go out of the cave at some point to get food. Uh, and when he does, they could escape and the Cyclops wouldn't know they're escaping. And so that's what happens. The Cyclops wow. okay. is blinded, you know, he's, he's screaming and he's, you know, it's absolutely uh, terrible and everything. And uh, he opens the door up, but he thinks he's going to capture Odysseus by letting his sheep out because he feels over the backs of every sheep. Apparently they're giant sheep that can carry a man underneath. So Odysseus straps all his men underneath the sheep, the ones that are left. By the time the Cyclops, he, he had eaten six of them, you know, so there's six men he has to get out of the cave. And Odysseus hangs on to a, a big black sheep just hanging on underneath because the uh, Cyclops feels the backs of every sheep to make sure that they're not riding them outside the cave. And then when Odysseus gets outside the cave, he, you know, he releases from the sheep and he yells at the Cyclops and everything. The Cyclops comes up to the seashore. By this time, Odysseus's men are trying to sail away. Um, and uh, this is a part of a play I wrote. Cyclops, if, if, uh, if ever you want anybody to know who uh, blinded your eye, tell him Odysseus, king of Ithaca, because it was I. And so the Cyclops roars back, calls to his father Poseidon, the god of the sea, and uh, it says, make Odysseus a long voyage home, make him suffer and everything. Um, and uh, so that's uh, Odysseus in action to get him and his men out of a dangerous situation in a very clever way. Well, it's interesting too. It's a clever choice, but it also shows his flaw because he tells the Cyclops no man, you know, so initially yeah. so the Cyclops doesn't know who the person is. And so when, when asked who has harmed him, it was no man, you know, so it, it was yeah, a exactly. way of a crafty way of getting out. But then Odysseus in his hubris tells him his name. Yes. And of course he's the son of a God. So by doing so he's made the journey, not just for himself, but for his men, he's made their journey even that much more difficult. Exactly. It just shows his hubris and, um, and, uh, and also the Cyclops, based on the Odysseus sound, starts throwing these giant boulders at the ship, trying to sink it, and he almost sinks the ship. So it, he is a, he's a wonderfully flawed and interesting character because he is so brilliant. And I, perhaps that's you know, what the Greeks are telling us. That sort of brilliance, that greatness of mind can often lead to this sense of ego, which is boundless in many cases. So he yeah. really, you know, screws things up for his, for his companions, for the men who are under him. Well, he basically he leads that. to all their, all of them die. On the, it's incredible to think about it. Yeah. They all die. He's, I mean, he's charged basically with getting them home. So he gets home. Yeah. 
He yeah. uses all his wiles and makes sure he makes it through, but nobody else but him comes through. It's a very interesting character. Can you um, tell us about the story of the Scylla and Charybdis? Yeah, that's another one of the 12 stops of Odysseus on his voyage home. Uh, <clears throat> again, 12 being a symbolic number. Um, <clears throat> there's one part where um, Odysseus has to sail between two monsters. And uh, they, they, the ancients thought that it was the Straits of Messina, which are the straits between modern-day Sicily and Italy. Mm-hmm. Um and there's actually a village there called Scylla on the Italian side. And then mm-hmm. I have a very old map showing a whirlpool on the Sicilian side, and it's labeled Charybdis. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's really there or not, I don't know. I have to find out. I hope to find out sometime. Sure. But anyhow, Charybdis is, these are both, interestingly, they're both female monsters. So maybe Homer had it in for females. I don't know. Oh. Or all the ancient Greeks, uh, in terms of the the great thinkers, seem to have had some little bit, putting it mildly, problem with women. But okay, yeah. so we have two. So I think this is a monsters. Okay. You know, much as much as I love Homer, I think he's being male chauvinistic here. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyhow, Charybdis is a giant whirlpool, and and these two monsters are fraught with a sacred symbolic number system that I think I've discovered, because. Charybdis, one of the sacred numbers is three, and Homer says, Charybdis sucks down the sea three times a day. And uh, and then the other monster is Scylla, and Scylla lives in this cave on a sea cliff, just opposite Charybdis, and she has, get this, 12 feet, six long snaky necks, and inside each horrible head are three rows of teeth. Mm. So you get this number three, six, 12, you know, repeat right, it. Right, exactly. And I think that's no mistake. So anyhow, Odysseus has to make a terrible choice because he has to sail past these monsters. And this uh, uh, choice is what a lot of military commanders have ever, have made forever uh, when they're in terrible situations. Do they sacrifice a few men for the greater to save everybody, or do they lose everybody? It's really a horrible choice. And so he does sacrifice the men. So they sail, they have to sail close to Scylla. And when, despite her efforts to protect themselves, she still snatches six men and eats them. But he doesn't lose the entire ship or all the crew, and he sails on. What are some other interesting examples of his craftiness in the Odyssey? Well, uh, I like to think of his, uh, you know, his his, uh, personality because uh, his character. Because uh, he washes up on the island of the beautiful nymph goddess uh, Calypso. And... um, she falls in love with him. He was handsome and so on and everything. She absolutely falls in love with him. And she keeps him virtually as a love slave for seven years, sacred number again, seven, by the way, mm-hmm. on her island. And, 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 uh, but as, uh, uh, you know, as Homer says, in fact, the first time you see Odysseus, 
in the Odyssey uh, because he structures the book uh, so it begins in the middle of the story. You know that technique Homer originated is called in medias res, meaning in the middle of the story. Um, the first time we see him actually in the Odyssey, he's sitting on a rock on the seashore of Calypso's island, and he's crying. He's bemoaning the fate because he wants to go home to his beautiful wife and queen Penelope that he still loves, and also to his son Telemachus. When he left for Troy, Telemachus was a little baby, and now tw- Telemachus is like 20 years old. Mm-hmm. He wants to go home to them, and uh, but Calypso won't let him go. And so the, the goddess Athena, who is the patron goddess of uh, Odysseus, she goes to Mount Olympus and to her father, Zeus, the king of the gods, and she pleads with him to please let Odysseus go. He suffered long enough. He fought 10 years of the Trojan War, and then he's been, uh, you know, assailed by all these gods and monsters for, uh, you know, almost 20 years. He needs to go home. And he finally relents, and he sends the um, messenger god, uh, Hermes, to give the bad news to Calypso that she has to let him go. And she, she, uh, and she says, you know, I, I, I don't want to let him go. I love him. He says, you have no choice. You can't argue with the almighty Zeus. Um, and she said, you know, I, I, I want uh, Odysseus to live here forever while I even, even offered him the gift of the gods to live forever. In other words, she, she had the ability to offer him immortality. And Odysseus turns down immortality so that uh, he'll die as a normal you know, person, normal uh, you know, mortal. Um, because he wants to give back, he loves his Penelope. So that is the, uh, you know, there's just a lot of interesting moments in the Odyssey and human moments like that, you know, that I, I think. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting because he does want to get home to his wife. He loves his family. He, he is careless with protecting the lives of his men. Um, he will, he uses craft, but he also, and cunning, but he could also be, uh, less than honorable in his behavior sometimes. So he is a truly complex character. He's he, a really he really is. And, but that's Homer. All his characters are complex. They're not simple like they are in Game of Thrones. In Game of Thrones, basically, they're, they're crafty and evil, but they're not, uh, they're not multiplex in terms of their personalities or their character or what they do. I might disagree with you on that one, Gary, but we'll have to agree to disagree. I think there are some complex characters in Game of Thrones. I think that what the Odyssey brings us is is a level of genius that really has been unmatched. I mean, it's it's the reason that Homer has lasted the test of time for the last 3,000 years or so, is because he has this compelling story, these incredible gods and goddesses, the these incredible men and women in these worlds he's created. It's an amazing story. I think what I'd like to do, though, now is let's kind of wrap up and let's end this with something I like to call one more thing. What's one more thing people should know about the Lost Palace of Odysseus as they listen to this soon? What's one more thing you want them to take away or do from learning about this? Well, the the palace is really celebrating this 
a fantastic uh, hero of history, you know, Odysseus. And the, uh, the story of the Odyssey has been incredibly influential throughout time. I mean, just recently, John Lewis, um, you know, who uh, the, the great uh, senator who died, you know, and, and he was such mm-hmm. a civil rights leader, American politician. Yeah, right? yeah just a, a real hero of the civil rights movement and everything. Uh, he, he was from the city of Troy. And there's uh, Ithaca, New York. There's Ithaca University. Uh, and uh, and even, you know, we mentioned Game of Thrones. One of the main characters in there is, uh, is this Queen Circe, named after the witch goddess Circe from the Odyssey. And, so, and, and the patron, the matron goddess of this show, 34 Circe. So indeed, Circe yeah. is something that we, um, she is a goddess that we admire. Yeah. So I think the one thing more you would say to people is that the importance of this person, this character, this story. It's been incredibly influential in our culture. I mean, you know, uh, Honda has an Odyssey car, you know, uh, right, and right. what I'd like to end with is uh, even the word Odyssey has become a, a concept that everybody in their life goes on their own Odyssey. They're born, they go out on the sea of life, they uh, encounter their own gods and monsters, and they come home again one way or the other. And so it's about our voyage of discovery, our voyage of self-discovery which every one of us does. I mean, how, how seminal is that? I think that is amazing. My one more thing I would say to people is go and read the Odyssey. Go and read it. Absolutely. Uh, so let's close that down. And on that note, uh, we will come back and talk more about uh, the actual search itself with Gary. But I want to thank Dr. Gary Stickle for joining us today. Um, Well, thank you. It's been great, and I've been able to share my passion for the Odyssey. Thank you. This has been the 34 Circe Salon. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk with you again.